Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And joining me as always is Daniel Zana. Hey, Harry. I'm Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker. And I just wanted to warn everyone listening and guesting on this podcast, always with water. Always with water. Today, we're going to be talking about Bo is Afraid, written and directed by Ari Aster, with our guest, who is an associate producer at The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, as well as a comedy writer whose work has appeared on The Verge, Polygon, SB Nation, and Quibi. Remember Quibi? When he's not writing jokes, you can find him picking up his dog's poop in Brooklyn, New York, which he doesn't mind doing because his dog is a very good girl. Nathan Seikert, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you guys for having me. Excited to be here. I uh, am excited to talk about a movie that uh, so far I've yet to find anyone that uh, enjoyed watching it, but I'm hoping you guys uh, could be my first. It's, a, it's yeah. an interesting question. I think I really liked it the first time when I had to do my homework on it for this podcast. It was one of the more stressful viewing experiences I've ever had, which is by design. We'll, we'll get into it. This is a very yeah. anxiety inducing, you know, guilt ridden kind of movie. But especially, you know, take that with the added effort of trying to just condense all of these. I mean, it's it's a three hour movie where every five minutes there's 10 new ideas and try to build a conversation around it. I'm very excited. I think it'll be great. But this was definitely a stressful viewing experience this time around. You know, after having watched it the first time without knowing much and actually seeing the trailer, but not really having some idea of what the film's about, because the film does a pretty good job of like showing cool sequences, but not really telling you much. Like Harry said, you know, once I did watch the movie, I had all my scares done. I think the second time I was furiously taking notes, I was watching YouTube videos to kind of look for theories and then kind of like mapping that onto our sort of Jewish lens. And it's not very hard to find the Jewishness in this film. But I wanted to ask you, Nathan, before we get kind of too far down the rabbit hole, what on earth made you pick this film to discuss on our podcast? This, for me, is uh, maybe the, the most relatable Jewish film uh, I've seen. When I saw it in theaters, I was giggling to myself the whole time and was pretty much the only person by the end giggling because I just, I found that it 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 tapped into a type of anxiety that I, I think that a lot of Jews feel, that a lot of people feel, but specifically in relations to our mothers, uh, really just, I don't remember the last time I watched a movie and felt so seen, which is a crazy movie to feel seen with, but boy, did I did I relate to it? So yes, when when you guys asked me about a Jewish film, I w- it didn't even hesitate. This was the first one I thought of. Interesting, interesting. Maybe we have to have you lie down on the couch. We'll talk a little bit about this while we take notes. Because I know, we can we can bring my mom into the meeting if you want. Yeah, to. Exactly. I I love it. I love it. I think I'm gonna have to tread a little bit cautiously. My mom does listen to this podcast and is the best and amazing. You know, no, we love you. We love you. We love our moms. We love all our moms. But like, it is interesting watching a Jewish movie and we always look for what we can kind of latch onto. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation, you know, where Jewish mother guilt fits in on the spectrum of guilt from our parents. But to the extent that the movie portrayed, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. But there was some familiarity in terms of, you know, going home to your mother, spending time, you know, family, kind of the comments that you get. And again, like I said, for the record, this will be the last time I say it, but none of this applies to my mom, who is incredible and amazing. But also (laughs) there was something, no, but there was something really particular, even as this movie ventured into just pure absurdism, I would say by the end, but I think five minutes in, you're kind of already in that territory. So Mm -hmm. there's something very uniquely relatably Jewish about this. And I love that you chose it. And I also, I pre-gamed this this recording by taking my Zoloft, 
Uh, this is a, a very uh, pro, well, I guess I was going to say a very pro medication movie, but I, I don't really know how I feel. I, I, I couldn't really, you know, watching it last night, I had trouble figuring out exactly what Ari Aster's take is on uh, dealing with anxiety because mm-hmm. it feels very much like a movie that's just like, there's nothing you can do to help. Everything that's the worst thing you could imagine happening in every situation will happen. Uh-huh. Even if you try to take your medicine, there's going to be some sort of uh, uh, problem. So I feel like the for me, the movie, for, as, as someone who deals with anxiety, uh, I, I find that the, the movie, I don't want to put it, it almost felt good to have someone show you their worst thoughts. Like when, when I'm freaking out and I'm imagining, oh God, what if this happens and this happens? This movie is like, great, we'll show you everything, like mm-hmm. all the worst possible things. And there's this weird catharsis with watching someone go through that, that, uh, that I can kind of live through them safely on my couch. Totally. I will say like right up top, you know, there's a large uh, subculture of people on Reddit and on YouTube and all sorts of things that have like lots of theories about it. And there were numerous people on Reddit who were saying some, as someone who struggles with this or this, you know, I have this kind of mental illness, I have anxiety disorder. Like a lot of people were saying, like, I've never seen what I feel internally dis- d- displayed on screen so accurately. So it's, it's you know, it's it's cool to hear you saying that. And I, and I definitely want to dive into like specific scenes. Yeah, I, I think that experience of seeing kind of all the worst outcomes and that anxiety kind of manifest. I, I have so many examples we'll talk about when we get into the bulk of the film, but it just reminds me of a quote I found from Astor among many, you know, describing what he was going for with this movie. But he said, it's not exploring a man's life so much as his experience, putting the viewer in his head, inside his feelings, hopefully on an almost cellular level. Like, Ooh. It, there, like there's a big debate and and we're going to talk about this hopefully because one of the conversations I wanted to have for is the kind of dreamlike, you know, narrative of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it's not a question of like, oh, when is he sleeping? What's real? Like the entire movie is consistently following this logic that I think I think, Nathan, you just put into words well, that it's just all of the worst things that can happen just that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, what's true or not is almost irrelevant. Like, I don't think this is one of those movies where there's like a dream story happening and a real story happening and you're trying to balance, you know, what's in his head, what's not. I, I think this all is just, it's one long fever dream of just all of the worst anxieties manifesting kind of collectively. So, Harry, do you want to tell everyone what the movie's about, according to IMDb, before we get too far? Yeah, I definitely can, because I have a lot I wanted to uh, follow up on there. But before we get into all that, the summary reads... Following the sudden death of his mother, a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic Kafkaesque odyssey back home. I mean, usually we look in the summary for like, where's the Jewishness in it? But I think we can kind of fine-tune it and refine it for this episode because we talked about anxiety and maybe that's like, you know, we could do anxiety on film, our sort of spin-off podcast because we'd have a lot of films. There's got to be a lot of crossover. Totally, yeah. (laughs) And Astor, I think, did the work like he many, many quotes talked about this as his Jewish odyssey and, you know, mm-hmm. like a Jewish take on Lord of the Rings, I think is something he called it. So it's uh, we don't have to search too hard to find that read. I don't think we're uh, we're jumping in here. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was also watching a lot of videos, interviews of him and like people would be like, all right, so uh, so for this uh, person, like uh, like what's up with this? Like very literal questions. And he was, you know, he's kind of like you figure it out. Like I've done the work and it's up to you to kind of interpret it as you'd like. Uh, his answers are not very straightforward in terms of 
I think he wants to try to elicit sort of a reaction from the viewer as opposed to kind of spelling it out for a lot of people. He has also described the film as like a nightmare comedy, which is kind of like what we were saying. So like Harry, you know, the logic is that of a nightmare. So some things, and it's like a fever dream. Some things make sense. Some things don't. Um, but he's put all the stuff out there and there's a lot to get into. So let's say let's roll up our sleeves and drink our water and then let's get into it. Yeah. Do you have any uh, quick context you want to share with us, Daniel? Sure. Yeah. I could, context corner. Yeah. I mean, not a ton. I feel like I, I was furiously typing in all the allusions for the different things here and there. But, you know, the film written and directed by Ari Aster from a script that he wrote, I think, before Midsommar and Hereditary, which are his two other films that he's uh, his two feature film, you know, with A24, I believe. He's primarily known for, I guess, I don't know if it's called body horror, maybe just just straight horror. I don't know. Uh Elevated and psychological. I yeah. think he, I think Hereditary kind of brought us into that uh, that era we're in now of the elevated horror movie. Elevated. Which... Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, he. I'm trying to. I was also trying to think of how I would describe his type of horror, and it's very, um, it's very like visceral. He he loves like a he loves a practical dead body. Yeah. All oh, of yeah. his movies have had that, and there's something that it, like uh, it. it Everything feels like it's just, it's in camera, nothing, he doesn't do it. I mean, yes, he does stuff in post, but mm -hmm. it just, he, it feels so, you know, the way, and we'll get into it, but like, um, the way that the characters uh, touch some of the dead bodies, uh -huh. they, they, I feel like I can feel the weight of them. Yeah. I can like, I get, yeah. and there's a, there's a feeling in his movies where I'm like, it, it is so unnerving. Like I find Midsummer to be his most upsetting movie because that, it just gets under your skin. And I think mm -hmm. this movie gets under your skin in a very different way because it digs into your brain a bit and your anxieties. But um, yeah, visceral horror is kind of how I would describe it. It always like seems to build, you know, like it, it builds towards this sort of throughout the film. I think this is the film that has the most kind of like craziness throughout. Whereas I feel like Midsommar and Hereditary kind of like build towards that like third act craziness. Mm -hmm. This film starts out crazy and maintains that crazy and then kind of like elevates the crazy. But there are sort of lulls where you're like, OK, great. And then someone drinks a bucket of paint and is chased out the room. So it's like <laughs> it's every time I thought I knew where the movie was going, it always surprised me. I was constantly being surprised for the entire three hour run. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think everything you're describing about this very visceral horror is so evocative of like the first 10 minutes of this movie where it doesn't feel like someone just walking past the green screen or a background, like every piece in the background of this chaotic, you know, Kafka-esque, they talked about it, just feels very like, it feels very tangible and frightening. And it's ironic because I think this movie, and a lot of people agreed, is considered a much more of like, an, not quite an outright comedy, but it's much funnier than any of yeah. his other movies. Like mm -hmm. that seems to be the tone he's balancing. It's this absurd and funny before it ever really gets to that horrific. But I found it so viscerally upsetting. I mean, I, you know, like I, I know when every time, you know, a big movie comes out, it reminded me of uh, Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which I think we've shouted out a couple of times on this pod without actually ever covering. But yeah. I remember when people Great were talking film. about that movie. Great movie. But I just I, I thought of it when I was watching this one, because everyone, when they said that, they're like, it is the craziest opening sequence, like nothing you've ever seen. And like, yeah, there's a lot going on in Babylon. I'm not saying I'm so desensitized that, you know, everything with the animals and the people and all the nudity, like, sure, that's wild. But like Bo walking into his apartment, you know, the day for those who've seen the movie, the day after he, you know, sleeps outside and he walks in and you just see like the walls and everything is like brown and destroyed and there's a dead person and someone like that to me was the most chaotic, ridiculous, absurd 
you know, depiction like that, I, that I've seen it. I was like, this actually can, you know, stand up to that title of this will be one of the craziest things you've ever seen put to film and in a different way, but, you know, in a very effective way. I love, you know, in those beginning scenes, how everything is really, uh, and maybe I'll tie the Jewishness in early, but there's like the sort of the text of like his, his room. And then there's like the subtext where you like read the signs in the background and there's like hidden messages like that reference his earlier short films or there's like gags to like things later on. And then you'll see the mother scolding their child in a boat overturned. And then that's like foreshadowing later on. So there's like so much in there. I don't think I caught that. Upon second rewatch, there's a lot of, you know, you kind of keep an eye out and, um, you know, this is just on films. So there's lots of uh, commentaries on the main story. Uh, you know, I just love funny gags. Like there's a shoe in his monitor. And then he like then takes his monitor and puts it on his desk and is like booking a flight with a shoe still. Yeah, it is a very funny and very visually dense movie. And there's a lot going on. Uh, you're talking about the first 10 minutes. I believe it was in the first 10 minutes we're introduced to the uh, iconic character Birthday Stabman. Oh, yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, just to add to that, like, again, we're, we're treading on the conversation so much that I think, Daniel, I'm, when I wrap up, if that's cool with everyone, I'm going to ask you to take us to break so we can get into it. But oh, just yes, yes, birthday yes. stab man, just to tease a later conversation, like that's part of the fever dream nature of like he's, you know, every step of the way you're introduced to something. And then, of course, like, what does your mind do? It creates a scenario where you're confronting it. So you watch birthday stab man, 10 seconds on the news, you hear about this naked guy stabbing people like it's inevitable that in this fever dream world that he was going to run into this guy and get stabbed by him. Like there's, there's so much, you know, in that dream logic that I want to get into, but as, as promised, Daniel, I'm going to, I need you to take us to break just so we can get <laughs> no, into this before no. you know losing all the structure completely. Yeah. I think, you know, the more, the more you're saying that it makes me think about all this other stuff where it like, yeah, all these illusions, but I'll, I, I got to follow orders, Nathan. I, I got to. So Harry's making me go to break. What can I do? It's another theme of the movie, but I know. I'll get into that later. He's been controlling orders, me go, this go. entire time, Nathan. <laughs> he cut off my my credit card. He disconnected my phone. What can I do? I, I have no other choice but to take us to break. At the end of the podcast, we're all going to judge you for your entire life. Oh, and, no. And That's one, what this one is all great trial. Oh, great. It's going to open up and the entire Zoom is going to open up and there's like 50,000 windows and everyone from my life is going to, oh boy. No, that's going to be on Monday. That's Yom Kippur. That's like sort of, yeah. so there you go. Wait, uh, this, yeah. This is our Yom Kippur episode. It's good timing. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So let's take a quick break. We'll come right back and then apparently I'm going to be judged, but that's going to be at the end of the episode. So we'll be right back. Cover a little bit more of Bo is Afraid with our guest, Nathan Seikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Nathan Seikert discussing the epic film, Bo is Afraid. Harry, please get us started here in our discussion of this amazing film. Sure. So before we dive, and you know, we've mentioned this a bunch, that there is so much kind of subtext, thematic layers that, you know, this being Jews on Film, we'll definitely get into. But if you were watching this for the first time or even just heard about this movie, accessing it from the text of the movie itself and really like the jewish entry point that i think we've already covered i mean this at, at its core is the is the story of this very guilt-ridden neurotic jewish character you know we've, we've spoken about you know that kind of model of a jewish character that we've seen in other movies but this might be the epitome of what that looks like of all your kind of neuroses coming to bear all that anxiety you know before we even get to like or, or just 
even talking about the guilt part of it, I mean, this is a movie where in the first 10 minutes, a therapist writes down guilty when he's talking to our main character. And by the end of it, he's being tried for all of his crimes of the little things he did, you know, crying in a mall when he was seven years old to his mom. Like, this mm -hmm. is a movie that is, you know, absolutely about and kind of dealing with the neuroses of this, of you know, of this character, the guilt that he's experienced. So I just wanted to open a conversation about, you know, this, the trope that we've seen of this guilty, you know, neurotic Jewish character with their guilting mother often, which we've already spoken about a little bit. And, you know, where does this movie kind of come into that? What does it add to that, you know, ongoing trope that we might have seen in other similar kind of films? It is true, you're right, that it, it's kind of a, a different take on the character that we've seen many, many times. Um, I think, you know, what's interesting is that I think it's not a surprise that uh, uh, we Jews are uh, can be an anxious uh, bunch and um, I think that a lot of the reason why there's so many Jews in comedy and film I think a lot of people you know we we pull from our trauma and our and our pain and our anxiety and 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 make art and make comedy out of it and I think we've kind of seen that in one uh in one way you know I think uh, the Woody Allen type is is a very specific type but I thought this was such an interesting version of it because it's not the it's not that the character is making the jokes it's the world around him that's making the jokes and he's kind of the 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 target for it all mm -hmm. um it's still through his eyes it's still like from his perspective but it's not he's not he you know whereas a, a woody allen type sorry to have to keep bringing him up in this situation it comes um up. yeah i should i was here um but you know it it's uh him, his character uh, uh, coming, you know, right, whether it's like in Annie Hall waiting in, in a long movie line or something, it's, it's him interacting with the world around him, whereas this movie feels very much like the the, the inverse of it, uh, which I, I just had never seen before. And, and kind of I think that's why it hits you on a, a deeper, more visceral level as opposed to just uh, laughing on the surface. I mean, I found that like thinking about a couple of things, thinking about like both throughout all these things, like he never on the surface doesn't appear to be doing anything like wrong. Like he's sort of like going through the world. Like, yeah, if somebody like chased after me, I'd like run into my house. I'd be afraid because like people were trying to kill me or all this other stuff. Like there's so much that the world throws at him and he's just doing the best he can to kind of get through it all. But he seems sort of constantly like, you know, afraid as the, as the title says, like, He's much, he's much, much more comfortable in his home, in Mona's home, in uh, Grace and Roger's home. Whenever he's like in the home, he feels very calm and fine and whatever. And then something will like sort of drive him out of that and he'll be sort of totally scared and unsure of what to do. So I think, you know, the world can be a crazy place. Um, you talked a second ago about like trauma and like we sort of are introduced a little bit to to Bo's mom early on, but it's only towards the end that we really understand like why Bo's mom is the way that she was. Like she talks about her mom and like we find out more throughout the film about like why Bo's relationship with his mother is the way that it is and how it's sort of developed. So it's all that intergenerational trauma that has sort of like seeped into his way of being and by extension his mother's being as well or maybe the inverse like, you know, his mother's got the trauma then she sort of inflicts it on him and 
that kind of leaves Bo where he is. And that's where we sort of pick up the movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, just, I, I want to talk about the uh, anxiety, but I'll just address the mother. I mean, the way that she kind of, you know, blames this on her trauma and, you know, manipulates him throughout the movie. I mean, yeah, it's very toxic. It's not like a, oh, we understand she suffered. It's she's leveraging this just to sure. further make him feel bad. I mean, she Guilt is him, yeah. one of the most upsetting characters I've ever seen on screen. I could not like stand watching her because everything she said, maybe we could just do like a super cut at some point, of, <laughs> right. especially, you know, Patti LuPone's monologue at the end, who she played so well. But before before jumping more into that, I, I did want to address what I thought it was a really interesting point you were saying, Nathan, about how the world is kind of conspiring against him. Because right. I, I one time saw it defined for me kind of the difference between drama versus melodrama is like drama is like, you know, you're doing something wrong. And like melodrama is like the world is kind of conspired, like the world is falling around against you. Ah. And with this movie, it actually wasn't as clear as you'd think, you know, in my mind, what was going on? Because at some point, obviously, his world is insane. I mean, we, we talked about that opening sequence and every person he encounters is awful to him, is manipulative, yeah. is controlling him. Like he is such a passive, you know, victim in a lot of these scenes. But the way the movie, you know, the, the language of the movie is, is very clearly suggesting that this is in part his perception of everything. It's like really, mm. it's almost like externalizing his internal anxiety. So I think it it's a really interesting take on the neurotic Jew because it like, you know, sometimes you see them in a movie characterized as this neurotic character and you're like, oh, that guy is, you know, that guy girl is like crazy. Like they have all this going on in their head. This is almost saying, but in their head, everything else is crazy. And I'm, it gives us a weird kind of empathy in a way of like, totally. we can understand you know that it, it puts us in that perspective i mean this is a movie we'll talk about it throughout invites us to be a part of the movie i mean just jumping all the way to the very final scene where you kind of see that that judgment being presented in like the stadium and i was actually in a theater where like it was in that kind of stadium seating where it really felt like you Ooh. kind of mapped into the round and like okay. this movie throughout that's one example but is inviting you to weigh in to judge to see yourself but this is a movie that i think very effectively doesn't show you the neurotic jew it, it makes you the neurotic jew in a way that i think could be very upsetting i think about the part when as soon as he leaves his apartment <laughs> and that guy walks by him. You're fucked, pal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why yeah, would yeah. you say that Literally to me? And, yeah, and I was like, that, like, hit me so hard. Because, you know, those are the kind of things, at least for me, I constantly, like, you know, you're, you're constantly looking how other people might be viewing you in a situation. Am I standing weird? Am I dressed weird? Did I say something weird or something like that? And, you know, you're all, it's always in your head. They're not actually thinking that. But to have someone actually turn to you and say directly to your face that you are so screwed is, like, I was like, oh my God, yes, this is, um, I, I'm, I, uh, relate deeply. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a number of instances of that where like, you know, the therapist is kind of like, I'm so sorry on the, on the voicemail or like grace slips him a message. And like that, it's that sort of anxiety kicking in. It's like, wait, what do you mean by that? Like, did I misread the situation? Is there something, maybe I've been viewing my world all wrong. There could be some sort of other way to understand a situation. It's uh, very anxiety producing yeah yeah and, and like who wouldn't be filled with anxiety sure. when, because this being a fever dream i mean all of his anxieties are validated like right. one of the worst anxieties when you talk to your therapist in you know privacy is that somehow they're you know it's going to get back to the person you're talking about and then the reveal at the end of the movie is that you know his therapist you know all the sessions were recorded for his mother and his mother had a relationship with him and it was like like i think this movie at every turn it's it's hard to say where the world conspiring against him ends and where his own anxieties are manifest because who knows what's even controlling the logic right. of what's happening. Right. 
but like you can never blame this character for any of his anxieties because like he like like for example in the beginning of the movie he leaves his key in the door and he's like should i leave and you know i was thinking like with the flight i was like nah, you know maybe you should leave you know what's the worst that can happen people aren't going to break in don't and get immediately your that yeah. night yeah. yeah and immediately that night 30 people go in and destroy exactly. all this stuff and steal everything like of course the worst possible thing that can happen mm-hmm. will happen to him so right. yeah you can't blame a guy for that kind of anxiety sure the movie doesn't sorry to spoil it uh doesn't have a happy ending he right he everything that could go wrong goes wrong he's finally brought before everyone and judged for his entire life and he's killed for it i mean it is just like i can i can understand why the movie left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because it really is like it's a it's a difficult watch it's long it's stressful and then it just kind of it's just the worst thing that could happen in the end happens and then immediate credit i love that it doesn't even give you any extra time as soon as it as soon as he's flipped over credits roll and you're just left with the boat floating and um it's uh it's a challenging movie you know it ends sort of on this uh you know spoiler alert if you haven't already seen the film or don't plan on watching the film what pause it watch it now and then come back but like you know this whole like idea of this guilt-ridden person like he has so much guilt at the end of the film after like choking out his mom unsuccessfully she survives he's like begging her for for her forgiveness kissing her feet saying he's sorry and then at the end you know there is that moment where like he realizes that he needs to pay for his you know either just that moment or his lifetime of transgressions and he just he makes peace with that you know and it takes him a while to get there but then he makes peace with his his sentence and then he just accepts his fate uh but yeah, this is a lot. So yeah, so we've been talking about his mother a little bit and kind of the way that she is the the root of a lot of his anxiety and kind of overwhelming him. And you know, one thing that Daniel and I were texting about as we were tracking the movie was just how much she is a force in controlling every step of his life. And there are implicit ways the movie shows this. If you didn't notice it the first watch, you'll see, you know, her logo, which we're introduced to at the end, the Mona Wasserman MW is all over his apartment. I mean, we learned that she's the reason that he's even in that hell hole that he has to kind of live there. And she, her presence, if you really track it, and I'm sure Daniel will cite some more examples, kind of pushes him almost every step of the plot. She is this overbearing and ultimately all-knowing figure. You know, I already mentioned that with the therapist that she kind of knew everything that was happening. We learn at the end that she really takes on this almost, you know, dare I say, godlike presence in his life. And I wanted to hear if you guys had any thoughts about, you know, this movie's depiction of Jewish motherhood, but also our relationship with God and, you know, kind of how that intersects and, you know, where she kind of comes in on his anxiety-ridden journey throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that the movie um, captures something about uh, Jewish men that I relate to, which is uh, a lot of times uh, we want, at least for me, want to just be kind of told what to do. And there's that part where he's on the phone with his mom and he's like, what do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Well, it is the right thing. Really, everything kicks off once she, I mean, then she dies, but I put an air quote there, but but um, it really is once she hangs up on him and no longer gives him support, uh, you know, this is all part of her plan to prove, like, look what happens when, when you uh, betray your mother and you don't go visit your mother and you don't get her support anymore. Everything goes wrong. And I just like when when he was just so pathetic, just being like, tell me what to do. It, it 
it is such a it is such a specific type of relationship that I think you know sometimes it's just easier to just kind of I don't want to have to think I just want to t- tell me exactly what to do in this situation. Right. Ari Aster had said in in um, in a Q and A, he said, "I wanted Mona to not just be a mother or his mother, but the mother. She's like a god. That to me feels." like a very Jewish thing. The mother is God in lieu of a God. That's what you have. So yeah, I think you're right on. I mean, there is so much here. Like I, I'm now realizing how much I resonated with this movie. Again, love my mother. She's We amazing. love you, mom. We love but you, like, mom. <laughs> but like passive aggression is the worst thing in the world to me. Like I hate it so much. And that mm-hmm. is just what this mother embodies. But then on the flip side, what you're talking about, being told what to do, you know, my, my sister has a running bit with me because I one time, I don't even remember this. It must've been a couple of years ago. I just asked my mom, which cereal I should have. And she's like, really, you're asking, you know, mom that. And I was like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I appreciate her opinion. Like I, I didn't realize how much, but this movie is like, was this last week, I, Carrie? It was, yeah. but it, no, but it wasn't as long ago as maybe it should have been. Okay. But, <laughs> but anyways, but this movie, like, I, I think in the beginning, you know, Nathan, when you were talking about in our intro, when I had so much to add, but I need, we needed to get to the content, but now we're finally yeah, yeah, yeah. here. But when yeah. you said that this movie doesn't necessarily propose any solution to the anxiety, it just kind of ends. Mm-hmm. I actually think it does. And I think it does in that answer of there's nothing to be anxious about if you have no, if you don't have to make any decisions. And I think, and not oh. that that's such a, you know, not that such a beautiful, like inspiring answer, but I think that's what Bo clings to because if there is one happy scene in the entire movie, I would say it's that incredible play sequence in the middle where we're in this like fantastical world. And if you notice what's happening in that scene is there's a narrator dictating Bo's entire life. So uh-huh. he doesn't have to do any thinking. He has no agency. The narrator saying, and then you'll see this and then you'll go here. And even when things are bad, you know, like in, in the, you know, at, at one point in that story, his house is flooded, he loses his kids. He's always decisive and controlled. And that's when he has his final cathartic release where he, you know, admits what his sins are, which, you know, we, who knows what he's even guilty of. But like that movie, I, I think is really proposing this, the solution, you know, the, this, this Jewish anxiety that's plaguing this character comes from this inability to decide. And then that overwhelming, you know, anxiety, I guess that 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 induces. But I think there is a little bit of, you know, and, and I just to, to close out, like not only is uh, the narrator tells him what to do. His mother tells him what to do, but we even see it with like Dr. Cohen, who's an attorney mm-hmm. and not a doctor. He, he says on the phone, like, what should I do? What should I, that, that's what Bo is always looking for in this right. movie. Yeah. There are a lot of people who were, I couldn't tell the voice, but some people were saying that the voice, the narrator was Patty Lapone or, or Zoe Lister-Jones. I'm not sure, but essentially, yeah, this sort of like godlike mm-hmm. person Interesting. Gi- giving, giving Bo that sort of instructions on how to live his life. I mean, Upon rewatch, you know, as we're we're talking about the film and his mother being controlling, just a few choice examples, you know, throughout the film, uh, it's it becomes clear on second watch that's you know, more or less, I think she's controlling him. There are parts in the film that I kind of was like, did she plan for this, you know, sort of wild card thing to happen? I'm not sure how much of it she oversaw, but you know. She's calling him at the office. There's like a camera at the shrink's office. So she's able to like see that he's not picking up the phone. She cancels his credit card. So he's not able to purchase water. The UPS driver who is played by Bill Hader. <laughs> uh, he's probably in on the game. The the uh, Roger and the surgeries. Like there's so much. Um, there's a lot of video recording. And I'm wondering like the daughter was recording video. I thought maybe she was maybe sending those to Mona. It's like, a, here's Bo getting high in the van or here's Bo talking outside and just to kind of give updates. She's constantly surveilling and controlling his life. 
But yeah, I don't like the message that like in order to be comfortable in life, we just have to have other people like say what we, we should do in life. It's uh, it's kind of bleak, which is, yeah, it's upsetting, you know, but that's maybe the intended effect. <laughs> I, I just want to, before you go, Nathan, I just like, it's upsetting, but it's also religion and faith to a God. And I'm not saying that full stop. I think this movie dramatized it to the most literal extreme. Sure, sure. No faith. But I think kind of unquestioning obedience is a part of, you know, I mean, you're allowed to question, obviously, but kind of being told what to do is part of the security and safety that some people find in religion. Like I said, this movie is taking it to an incredible extreme, but especially in this, you know, read as Mona as God, which like I think, you know, Ari kind of confirmed Mm -hmm. in, in that kind of that reading. I think that there is a relationship that, you know, we have with a God that we find security in tradition in, you know, going to, you know, synagogue and shul on Yom Kippur and kind of doing what, like reading the text that was already outlined before us, there's something comforting and safe about being told what to do. And I think, sure. I think there's a relationship there. I was going to say also, I think at the very end, um, when he's, he's kind of like begging for help, mm-hmm. um, as the, as the boat starts to break apart. And, uh, I do think there's a moment right at the end where he, he, looks very peaceful he looks yeah. very much at peace and i mm-hmm. do think it, it is the moment when he finally just accepts this is what is happening to me this is i i am this is happening to me for my actions and kind of in a way like he only he really only finds peace once he accepts and takes responsibility for his own life right not to use uh the 2020 well it's an older term than that but he's sort of effectively being gaslit that like he has done many many things wrong intentionally like right like all the stuff that he talks about you know you hid at the mall and then his sort of defense attorney on the other side is like, well, actually he was not, he didn't want to, and they say, well, you did this. I didn't know. And at a certain point, the defense attorney is like thrown off the thing and and is killed. It's like, this is not a chance for you to sort of uh, contextualize your sins. We want you to feel guilty and we're going to punish you. There's no, there's no way out of it. Um, He he accepts his powerlessness to change the situation and that brings comfort. But I think that's a very existential message for this movie. And I don't know what this movie is promoting, but it certainly is proposing this idea of, you know, you can do it all you want. You're going to constantly be told that you're wrong. And at some point, you know, just accept it and die. Like, it's not not the happiest ending, but I think that's what this movie in some ways pitching. Speaking to the defense attorney, I think there are so many moments that, um, feel Jewish and I can't really put it into words, but something about Richard Kind uh, uh, debating with the defense attorney. Sure. Uh, really, I was just like, God, this movie is just just touching on, <laughs> on Judaism in ways that I didn't realize. Right. As soon as he showed up on the phone and you just heard it was unmistakably Richard Kind's voice, I was like, yeah, no, this is a Jewish movie. I'm yep. into it. <laughs> there it is. Um, you know, there's this, It's it's very interesting, like I'm going to bring in the Jewishness here with Mona because I was talking to Harry before a lot about this movie, but specifically about like Mona's sort of conditional love, right? And like when Bo is at home uh, and, you know, she says, this is not my home. This is our home. You can stay here as long as you long, as you, as long as you'd like and kind of making sure that, uh, that you feel comfortable here. It reminded me of, of, of a few parts in, in the Torah service and things like that, where, there are these sort of conditional statements where it's like, I am the Lord, your God, and I'll give you all these good things. And, you know, sort of similar to that dream where you're like, you know, you'll be plentiful and you'll have lots of land and lots of kids. But if you don't follow my rules, I'm going to say all these bad things that could happen to you. And then it just kind of goes on and on and on. And that's I, that's very much 
I found a sort of analog there to how Mona is where if Bo follows her rules, she'll take care of him. She'll cover his credit card, his cell phone bill, his apartment. She'll comfort him. But if he decides, you know, to do things like subvert her uh, authority, like Bo's twin brother, you know, then he goes to the attic and he's punished and he lives up there with whatever is up there. Does that, does that resonate with either of you? Very much. Yeah. I also, uh, I, I think the, the quote she says, I'm in my house. Actually, you're in my house, sweetheart. And my house is your house, which it always will be. And, and that was such a, like, she says, this is oh, my it's the house. inverse. But of course I want oh, you to be. Oh, gotcha. Course. Okay. Well, please, please. Exactly. Uh, uh, you're, you're welcome. Which it, it, I think you're, it still is exactly your point. Um, where it is this, like, I am your God. I have provided all this for you, dude. Like yeah. you, you should, you should be uh, uh, thanking me and praising me. I, I will be good to you. However, right. if you don't do this, right, I will be wrathful and, um, yeah, make your life a living hell behind yeah, the I scenes. Also, <laughs> I, found, I found the the uh, opening uh, scene, the, the entire town, to feel very much like I imagined in Hebrew school uh, when we learned about uh, Noah uh, and, and the Ark and. And they used to talk about what, you know, oh, and it was, everyone was terrible and everything. I was like, how bad can the world have been that it was like, he needed to kill everyone. And then they show that world. And I was like, oh, this is probably what the Torah was referring to is like this yeah. kind of hellscape. Right. I mean, it feels like we're definitely getting into stretch of the pod territory. So we might be revisiting that one in our later categories, but I, uh, I, I definitely think so. I think that's a great take. Speaking of Noah, I, I did kind of want to talk about Noah's, uh, you know, his favorite thing, water, <laughs> because I do feel like water um, plays a large part in this movie, uh, whether it's, you know, Bo needing to drink water, lots of bodies of water, there's floods and things like that. And so I wanted to, this being Jews on film, I kind of wanted to talk about um, the role of water in the film, but then also the ro role of water within uh, Jewishness. Um, you know, what does water represent in this movie and how does that uh, sort of compare with some of the other ideas, the Jewish ideas of water, such as like rebirth and renewal, things like that? I, I hadn't I hadn't considered the water. So please, you guys take this one. Sure. Um, I mean, it's like on a surface level, I just think water is if you if it's pointed out to you, which it was to me by Daniel and then also confirming on, you know, uh, on Reddit and everything there, like it is everywhere in this movie. I mean, from the opening birth, if you want to consider that water, but obviously the inciting incident comes from or one of the inciting moments is him not taking his pills with water. That was like, you know, it's it's the first it's honestly it, it launches this movie because if this movie is kind of what you were just describing, Daniel, as, you know, the punishments you get for committing sins, mm -hmm. if there are instructions in this movie, you know, the one very explicit command that he gets is always with water, always. And him failing to do so in some ways instigates, you know, everything that happens afterwards, you know, because the original sin, water, my friend. In don't some eat ways. the apple. And he ate the apple. In some know? ways. So, right? so there is, it is so present there. And then right. just tracking it, you know, just to get us started, because I know you have some takes, Daniel. So just to set it up, I mean, there's water everywhere and all of the flashbacks when he meets, uh, you know, who would become his his future girlfriend, let's call it, you know, it's on a cruise. And he has the other flashback where he's in the bathtub and that's his like recurring nightmare. And it's just, I don't know, in the, in the play sequence, he's going through the water. And obviously at the end, you know, without you know, like burying the lead, like he's sitting in a boat that's overturned into water. It's like he starts in water and he's kind of you know, flush back into the water. So Daniel, why don't you get us started on what you think it, it means in the world of the movie and start making some of those Jewish connections. And then hopefully uh, the two of us can kind of jump in there with some of your ideas. I mean, I think water both represents like nourishment, but also like 
destruction, similar to his mom. Um, you know, water has the ability to like hydrate Bo. He needs to take it with his, uh, with his medicine. But then like, as soon as he tries to take it, he hangs up with his mom and says, you know, I can't make the flight, hangs up the phone. Almost instantaneously, the water in the building does not work anymore for him to take his medicine. His mother has cut him off. His mother represents, like the water in that scene represents his mother's care. So he's trying to get the water, doesn't work. He goes across the street to buy the the water. He can't buy it because his mother has cut off his credit card. Um, so he goes and he takes a bath and he relaxes. Similar to like his dream sequence, there's a lot there. But then it can also, you know, with the flood later on or the person wrestling him in the bath, it can kind of be chaotic and, and can ruin things. There's a dead person in the water at the cruise ship. There's lots of like ways that water can either help you out or destroy you. Uh, and, you know, just in the Jewish context, I was thinking, you know, there's the idea of like washing your hands before uh, you eat or like to 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 make your dishes usable. You like to tovel them, you put them in water to sort of purify them. Also, like you go to the mikveh sometimes and you like purify your whole self to, to sort of clean yourself. So just kind of wanted to see if there's, you know, a little bit of an intersection here. I mean, I'd be, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Bo's last name, Wasserman, is Waterman in, in Yiddish. So, so there's a little something here. I think Ari Aster is dropping these little crumbs for the Jews on Film Detective Squad to, to pick up. So well played, Ari. That was a fantastic take. I really, really just was like, wow, yes. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yep. That too. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's a lot in there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think like thematically, undoubtedly, I mean, it, it's in there. And like, I, I think you're, you're spot on, Daniel, with a lot of those takes on just, you know, the way it represents both renewal and, you know, it's like the source of life, right? It, it's, I mean, life is taken and given from him, right? It's it's given to him in the beginning and it's taken from him when the water is kind of pulled away and it's taken from him when he's put in, when he's dumped into the ocean. And it's, it's it literally takes his family away in the play sequence because it's, it's a specifically a flood that washes over and, you know, it's like this terrible storm, but it's a flood. So I think that's all there. I think there's more we can dive into the uh, the Noah reading, the Noah story, you know, kind of the flood as being the source of destruction. When you were saying, Daniel, just now that it destroys and creates, I was like, oh, yeah, it like washes through and kind of yeah. resets things. So I don't know, you know, where's the interplay with his own anxiety? Like, mm -hmm. I think everything is life and death to him. So it kind of is always manifest through water. But right, right. I uh, I think when we when we reconvene again for, you know, part two of this, because I think we'll have a lot more to talk about in, in like a year or so, I uh -huh. think we'll have our developed water theories ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's there in like a biblical way for sure. I think like the Noah flood illusions are for sure there. Um, and I think, you know, maybe the water is just like the the sort of calming thing that he needs in his life with this medicine which is you know yeah i don't know it's there's a lot in there but uh just wanted to sort of put it out there that um like his mother the water can both be purifying and rejuvenating and comforting but can also be destructive so and a lot of people i talk to talk about how much they love the first hour how funny they think the first hour is and mm -hmm. then it loses them and then by the time there's a penis monster in the attic they're like yeah. i can't with this right right I'm just gonna have a sip of water real quick. But while we while we while I have a sip, always with water, um, I kind of wanted to, you know, sort of talk about these sort of I don't want to call them undertones because they're so like overt, but the just sort of sexual innuendo, the shame, the guilt uh, portrayed within Bo's afraid. Uh, yeah, Nathan, w what are your thoughts on that? Did you have any sort of anything stick out for you? Lots of stuff uh, really stuck out for me. I mean, I think the the movie does. I mean. 
first of all, Bo's entire existence is like is he's told that his father died the moment he was conceived, the moment his father orgasmed, it killed him. It's immediately he's given this feeling of like any sort of sexual release, any sort of like uh, any sort of kind of like pleasure, personal yeah. self -rele pleasure, release, love is like bad. It'll kill you. Um, and like this movie where he continues to show what sort of thing happened when he finally gets that release, it leads to death. Like right. it, it, it literally kills the person he's with. And it, I think that the, the movie, I don't know if I have a fully formed take on it yet, but just this idea of like, uh, shame, uh, when it comes to sex is so deep in the movie. And I, and I do think, uh, that Mona, he kind of takes the, the, um, idea of the overbearing over loving mother and, uh, and like everything else pushes it to an extreme so in this case she like is literally controlling she's watch she watches him have sex in her own bed she strips the sheets after oh such a mom move too <laughs> yes she don't oh my god that's so funny yes yeah, she stripped the she strips the sheets i mean there's this this real i think that um god i hope my brother doesn't mind that i've said this um my ex had uh, had uh, an M name, so it it uh, and my my sister in law also has an M name, uh -huh. and my brother and I had talked about multiple times uh, in conversations. Maybe usually when we're getting worked up about something, a fight, we we had, had multiple times said mom instead of our partner's oh, uh, names. Okay, and I do <laughs> think there's a real uh, who knows if this is just hopefully this is not just me and I'm revealing on the podcast, but I think there's a real like <laughs> difficulty with moms and their son, Jewish moms and their sons sure. and. And, you know, um, I remember in, in elementary school, I wrote an essay and I referred to the, my mom as the love of my life. And the teacher had to pull me aside and be like, no, no, that's for that's for when you when you have a, a, a like a love interest. Your mom is something else. And it's really I think Jewish boys don't really know how to process the feelings that they have towards their mom, the love that they have. And sure. it's confusing when you're growing up. Sure. The, the more we talk about this movie, the scarier it's becoming. So let's not unpack all of that. But I'm kidding. <laughs> we, we, love love Everything's great. we love our moms. We exactly. love our moms. Everything <laughs> is great. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, the, this theme that, you know, we, we're, we're observing here with sexual, like, like you said, Daniel, it, it's overt. It's not, you know, subtext. And I think yeah. sexually repressed was, you know, a big theme that I saw, which in a very literal sense, this is a story about someone who has aged, you know, well into middle age. I and mean, he's fully gray, completely sexual actually repressed because you know part of the warnings of his mother he's never actually had sex because he was told you know it'll kill him immediately and i right. think like other takes that i saw about this movie and i think even from master himself were just about like you know seeing the story of someone who's never really grown up and like what anxiety would look like for an adult who's never actually matured mm -hmm. and i think there's an obvious connection there between you know allowing himself to you know be in love with someone versus allowing himself or you know to kind of have that kind of sexual awakening have that you know maturation that comes with that and i think all of his or a lot of his anxiety and his dependence on his mother and his need to be told what to do is is completely tied to that. Like his final awakening when he really pushes back against his mother and he chokes her. I mean, it, it comes after the sexual experience. Like right. it really is this waking moment for him. And this just reminded me like one of the other reasons he waited is not just because of his mother, but you know, this is another thing where he really follows instructions. His, uh, you know, the girl he met on the cruise, I forget Lame. her name now, but Elaine, you know, he has that thing. He has that picture that she's she left for him in his bedside table that says, like, wait, wait for me, wait yeah. for me. And he takes things very seriously and he listens and he does what he's told. So I think, yeah, so I, I just think that he's clearly sexually repressed. And I think that if not the root for everything, you know, for his dependency and his anxiety is, you know, inherently tied like there's no there's no two ways about it.
Bo is a good boy, right? So he listens, whether that's like Elaine, who he just met, and like they're going through the buffet and they're looking at all the different fruits and the vegetables and and like they show the chocolate with like the flies all over it. And she like dips her finger in and she wants to like push him a little bit, live on the edge. And so she says, suck this off. And he's like, okay. And she, he just like, she just shoves it in his mouth and he sucks it in. Like he has that sort of like, oh, I guess I don't need to listen. I can kind of like color outside the lines a little bit. And that's sort of when he is switched on a little bit and, and, and is excited, you know, to, to sort of see what life has, you know, what fruits lie beyond. It's very interesting. It's, it's also very perverse. But also, I was going to say that uh, Mona then hires her. Like, she has to be a part of every part of his life. So even when he meets this woman that kind of pushes him out of out of his comfort zone, uh, Mona then becomes her boss. Right. And then when, like, Mona, like, or the younger Mona, you know, kind of sees them kissing, like, her reaction to that scene is like... What did you promise her, Bo? Bo! Where is she going, Bo? Was she the one? because she knows that she didn't plan it. She wasn't part of it. And right. she knows that like, it's not just as much as, you know, this, this narrative could be blaming Bo for, you know, not growing up. Like mm-hmm. it, it's mostly because he's being smothered by her. Like she didn't let him, she, right. she infantilizes him kind of every step of the way. And when he could have had kind of at a, a healthier, younger age, that sort of sexual awakening, you, you can imagine like, why do you think they were leaving? You know, uh, Elaine's family after their first kiss is suddenly leaving the cruise the next day. Right. I would assume Mona had something to do with it. The same Probably. person who shuts off water, fakes her own death. I am sure she figured yeah. out who this person's, you know, father was or whatever, right. and you know, put something into place. So she is controlling, as we know, but also very inhibiting because she won't let her son actually mature out outside of her purview. So it's safe to say that Mona also planned their sort of liaison at night and then also killed her. It's not Maybe. too not too much of a stretch, right? I mean, just so I'm only, understanding the plot, right? I mean, I was going to say the only and... issue is that you're trying too hard to kind of give their reasoning to the plot, and as we mentioned, this is a fever dream Can't... where nothing seems to make sense. Right. So in his in his anxiety ridden world, I'm sure Bo is probably thinking, "Wow, my mom probably set up this whole thing," mm-hmm. but in reality, I mean, this is a, a too strange a movie to kind of apply, you know, some set of rules to. Not to get yeah. too graphic, but let's talk about let's talk about Bo's balls for a minute. His uh, like I think you know Roger, who's a surgeon, at some point when they're addressing Bo's wounds, um, talks about how his testicles are a little, a little bit distended and unhealthy. He should maybe go check that out. Um, and then sort of during their sort of uh, sexual scene, you see Bo's balls and they're very large. And the best part is. Bo's balls as a child, when he's first slapped on the tush by the doctor, they're very large and red. It's just a weird gag that Ari Aster like put in there. I don't even think I caught that. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange thing. But uh, again, the uh, Ari Aster Detective Squad, we we're here for the for the you know to to pick up all those little crumbs. So thanks again. I would say Mona didn't kill her. It was Bo sinning. Bo should not have had sex. He should have listened to his mother. And this is what happens. Right. It's it, she did put that temptation in front of him and he could have pushed back and said no. But this is what happens. With, yeah. And I like I think he like you, you were saying, Daniel, he's kind of gaslit this entire time, you know, throughout because he mm-hmm. at least from what we see, he is not committing any outright sins. And I think that's the first scene where he does feel like 
he actively did something he wasn't supposed to, like we see him navigate it. And mm-hmm. obviously it doesn't take very long for him to then choke his mother. But I think that's what sets up, you know, our final reckoning. Mm-hmm. The acceptance that he feels is because for the first time he's been punished this entire movie. I mean, we haven't even mentioned one of our favorite biblical illusions in Job. Like he is this Job-like figure who is suffering at every single step of the movie. But it's only in those final couple scenes where he finally takes agency, becomes this active character. You know, he's not right. such a passive person anymore. He does... And he actively does things that maybe we wouldn't consider sins, but certainly in the rules prescribed by his mother are, sure. you know, sins. I mean, the choking his mom might be a sin to anyone, but after he does those, that's kind of that that launches his reckoning and his acceptance by the end of it. Even as he kind of pushes back, you know, he he's kind of accepted what happened to him there. Yeah, I just feel so bad for him that he wasn't given the opportunity to kind of live a normal life outside of the purview of like Mona's you know, uh, supervision and surveillance and control. Like if only he had like cut off that like health monitor that Roger put on and he was able to just like hang out with the theater people. Although come to think of it, I do think the theater people were in on the whole thing anyway, but Harry's not going to allow me to pin down the literal. (laughs) I just like the trumpet noises were very similar to the ones at the end. So that's where I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know, sort of almost like the shofar sounds like during the play when it was starting. And then also the shofar sounds, you know, at the end during the trial. Straight to the bottom? I mean, it's right there. I got way more stretchier stuff for you, Harry. Okay, good. Well, I was going to say, speaking of the, the forest, I think that the movie is him constantly surrounded by moms throughout the movie. Surrounded. Yes. He's got his mom. He's got Grace, Grace the character who who is a, a grieving mother. Um, and kind of uh, overbearing in a very different way does uh, wants to do everything for him and is like so caring mm-hmm. and then he has the new mother the, the soon-to-be mother in the, in the forest the pregnant mm-hmm. woman yeah uh, who's kind of this like Penelope very ge- he's very de- yeah very gentle mom very yes. uh nurturing caring um calling uh and ultimately all those moms it's like it ends in destruction for all those other moms and the only mom he could make it home to is the 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 God figure mom. The one he's stuck with, yeah. Don't, don't forget yeah. Martha. I mean, she she like takes care of both throughout his entire childhood. You know, the one with, oh, the, yeah. with the birthmark? She ultimately like sacrifices herself for Mona so that Mona can then make Bo feel guilty. Uh, you know, for those who have not watched the film thus far, Mona was like, uh, you know, the housekeeper who essentially was very caring to Bo, put him to bed most nights when his mom wasn't telling him these horror stories. Um uh, but essentially it comes to, you know, we come to find out that she has sacrificed herself and apparently she had worked out some deal where her family doesn't ever have to work a day in their life again. And she had her head crushed by the uh, chandelier instead of Mona. That scene where like Bo kind of says at the end, he's like, I knew you you had faked your death because I recognized Mona's hands is one of those things that like this movie, we haven't said it enough, I think that it's just, it captures dream logic so well. And maybe mm-hmm. this is more of a window into my own dreams than everyone's, but like, and nothing I've ever seen compares to this, but like <laughs> the way that you just kind of change locations, which happens throughout. I mean, this is an, oh, yeah. an odyssey of a movie where he's in these different places. And I actually clocked it at least two or three times where someone says like, do you even know how you got here? And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, that's like, he's just in a new dream. Like, it's just that, that's kind of the logic. Right. And then, but I mentioned it with this scene because the way he's like, oh, I knew that wasn't you mom because I recognized Mona's thing. It's the kind of thing that you're so sure of in your dream where it's like the it logically makes sense, even though that <laughs> makes 
absolutely no sense. Like with the funeral, with everything that like, it was a fake death, like none of that makes sense, but it's so accepted because at every stage of your dream, things kind of add up a little bit until, you know, you wake up and you're like, why was I just going with that as if that were true? And it takes right. a minute to kind of get back into it. But when I say this movie, you know, everything was a dream. I don't mean it in the way that movies that are like, oh, it was all a dream, like things were ridiculous. I mean, the way things logically developed, like we said at the beginning, you know, the thing that you're most anxious about just kind of comes to happen, like comes to be like this movie just did it so effectively. And I just wanted to make sure to get that on the record. Oh, yeah. And he just kind of floats from location to location. You know, he's in the Literally. city and then he's hit by the bus. And now he's just now he's in the suburbs and then he's in the woods and then he comes out of the woods and he's right at his mom's house. Like it's all right. Oh, yeah. I guess he gets he gets a ride. But still, yeah, he just kind of floats between them. But but yeah, but it's like when you're having a fever dream, you wake up in the middle of the night, you fall asleep, you're having multiple dreams that are right. kind of weirdly <laughs> stitched together and they're uh -huh. all in new places. And like when he like woke up, I was thinking it um, after getting kind of hit by the bus when he wakes up in, in, uh, their, in that new house. And he's like asking, he's like, oh, what happened? And they even say to him, like, oh, it was just a dream. Don't worry. But he's like, wait, but is my mom actually dead? Was that real? Right, was that a dream? Right. And like, like yeah, your dream's just, I, I don't know. I just thought it was, uh, was For really, sure. really effective. I mean, there's also like, because he's having multiple dreams, like people from one dream end up in another dream. So like exactly. Grace from and uh, Jeeves are the ones serving soup at the beginning of the movie in that van. And then like Jeeves ends up in his attic, which we haven't even talked about, but like people bounce around to different locations and they sort of show up uh, and they seem very, very out, much out of context. Like Jeeves doesn't feel like he belongs in Mona's house, but maybe that's sort of where as much like a dream, he's sort of defeated. And, but that whole scene is wild and we could get into it, but I feel like we probably should get into categories. Huh, Harry? I was going to say, I want to wrap us up and get us into categories let's before do we do, uh, let's close out this, yeah. you know, sexually repressed discussion while, while you, Daniel, just explain to us what actually is in Bo's attic when he gets home. And before you do, I just want to wonder aloud if someone hasn't seen this movie, I wonder what they're, they're the picture they're kind of painting from our, our conversation, because I mean, this movie is stranger than you can imagine for those of you who have made it this far, which I appreciate, but definitely check it out. But Daniel, why don't you just briefly tell us what was happening in his attic? And then I think we can go to categories. I don't know. I think I might need your help. Uh, your both of your help uh, on this one. Literally what we see on screen, you know, uh, Bo is misbehaving and he, you know, talks back to his mom and then his mom sends him up to the attic. He's had visions of this attic before, but he wasn't quite sure. Bo climbs upstairs in a sort of haunting sequence, uh, you know, similar to some of his other films. I feel like maybe Hereditary concluded in an attic or, you yeah. know, a lot, a lot of good creepy scenes in attics. So, and they never seem to have working flashlights, <laughs> but uh, he goes upstairs. He sees what we can surmise is like a twin brother, you know, someone who we have seen pictures of or, you know, snapshots of earlier. Um, and then we see like a giant, I would describe a giant penis monster with very large testicles and sort of some claws. And the um, monster is like talking to him. Oh, Bo, it's, I love you. It's so good to see you. Things like that. So Bo is freaked out. Jeeves pops through the window and starts shooting and throwing knives. He throws a knife at Bo, this very skilled assassin. He throws this throwing knife and it just clonks Bo on the head and he falls over as if like, you know, whatever maybe that's god's hand in play here um but then the you know the penis monster kills jeeves and then bo uh runs away downstairs did i miss anything i know that's it's pretty spot on I, specifically the penis monster stabs its uh its 
pointy claw directly into Jeeves' head and a pretty a pretty gruesome kill. Kind of like a one that comes out of a slasher movie that was kind of it kind of came out of nowhere. I, I really enjoyed. Um, I, I this movie for people that haven't seen this movie, I fully recommend it. And I'm also aware of how many people really struggled with this. A lot of people I've talked to love the first hour. I think the first hour is just the zaniest, most straight comedy. Mm-hmm. And then when it starts getting into the weirder sto- kind of storytelling in the woods, and then by the time we're in dealing with a penis monster um, in the attic, uh, it loses a lot of people. And when I saw this in theaters, I could feel, I could feel that the most of the theater it had lost by the time the penis monster happened. I think I actually heard someone say, "What?" Like out loud uh, <laughs> right. when when the when he showed up. Yeah, it feels grounded. I mean, it's crazy to say that, but it feels much more grounded (laughs) in some kind of like dreamlike reality. But then the sudden arrival of this supernatural large penis monster seems to like kind of take it to that next level. And then I would say it's only at that point, crazy as it sounds, that like I begin to question like what is what's going on here? What's real? Because like the rest of it seems like super heightened but plausible. But the moment we introduce this idea of like a monster that's that potentially has like, you know, uh, consummated a marriage with Mona and created Bo and his twin brother, like that's when I kind of get into the wheeze about it. But just a dream. So I'm not supposed to take it too. I was going to say, maybe that's the part of your dream when that you wake up and, you know, this kind of nightmarish vision came to I have a hard time remembering dreams, which is crazy. Maybe they all, you know. Funny enough, I, uh, I have a cold right now. And so last night after watching this movie, I took my Tylenol PM, went to Ooh. bed. And guess what, guys? I had nightmares all night long. Oh, no. I don't know if it was the medicine or if I was afraid. But you're just talking about like, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, right. I was kind of bouncing all around. It was so stressful. But I can't really describe exactly why it felt stressful. But I, was, I woke up sweaty. And I was like, wow, this is a good, this is a good night to have this kind of experience before sure. hopping on the podcast. And while while we're lost in this kind of like breaking down our dream stuff, like one of the things that you know this movie does is it's a, literally a plot about someone trying to get somewhere and they just can't. And every time, and we spoke about this this idea briefly, Daniel, when we covered After Hours, that Scorsese movie, which has a mm-hmm. very I've actually seen it compared to this one because it's very similar. Oh, and just okay. like you just need to get from one place to another, and everything is kind of in your way. And I've had dreams similar to that, and I actually oh yeah, that's man. awesome. Hold I'm a big After Hours fan. Lo- oh, love that movie! Check out our our older episode on After Hours. Definitely well. Layers, great episode. But um, uh, but like I remember talking about that in the, that movie, and I felt it with this. I've had dreams where like I just like have you ever noticed? Maybe this is a unique experience, but like you can't run somewhere in a dream. Like you you feel almost like stuck yeah. in place. Yeah, yeah. And I looked up some idea on the internet that you know with dream stuff nothing is certain, but someone suggested that it's because your mind wants to move, but your legs are frozen, so you kind of uh-huh. get a this feeling of being like stuck in trap, but. Like I said, this movie is not a dream in the way like that some movies are like, oh, someone wakes up at the end and oh, it was all in their head. Like this right. really captured and visualized that that weird logical inconsistency that you believe in the dream and then don't make sense after of a fever dream. I think it's great. I think uh, I want to let you all speak, but I, I think we have to get to categories. This episode is running very long and we're going to go so deep and stretch of the pod. So with your permission, can we go to break, Daniel, and then absolutely take us to the categories? I'll just leave you with one closing thought. Please. Uh, Bo's sleep in the movie is terrible. Just think about that. He doesn't sleep a good night at all. Unless he's, until he's at Mona's house and he passes out on the couch very comfortably. But with that, I'll take you to break and we'll come back and we'll do a little bit of categories. We'll do our most Jewish scene. We'll do our stretch of the pod. 
And is this film good for the Jews? Think about that while we're on break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here talking about Bo is Afraid with Nathan Seichert. Harry, do you want to introduce those categories for us? Yeah, let's get started how we usually do and talk about what was the most Jewish scene in this movie. So what comes to mind as, you know, explicitly Jewish, like, oh, yeah, there, that was a very Jewish scene. Uh, understood how you will. So if one of you wants to take that to start, I've got one teed up, but let's hear what you're thinking. Hmm. I have one in mind, which is, which yeah, is go ahead. what I referenced before, which is at the very, the very final scene, hearing Richard Kind uh, in that very uh, um, New York Jewish voice uh describe all of the stuff he did wrong to his mother in his whole life i ask you to consider yesterday not three hours after meeting a knocked up dimwit who made clumsy eyes at him did he gift her with a tributary gift intended for no one less than his recently deceased mother i mean that for me i was like this is the, I, that scene is guilt. That scene is shame. It's uh, it's like atoning for sins. Uh, it, it's it's kind of it feels like the Jewish experience all packed into one tight scene. I think that's a great answer. Yeah, I think Richard Kind is a little bit of a cheat code for this question because I think he brings <laughs> that. But I think that that answers like it well. That. Like you know, one scene. You know, especially as you know, we're recording this a couple of days before Yom Kippur. Like that kind of literalizing that atonement is uh is very jewish on a number of levels so that's a great scene uh I'll, I'll add one you know on a similar note something that just felt very jewish this is a movie where you really could take so much of it i mean a lot of it is subtext but one scene that i, I particularly smiled at was uh when uh beau returns to his, his mother's house and he's kind of overhearing like a recording of the eulogy is playing and it's just like a reminder that you know in the context of the movie he missed the eulogy he didn't get back in time but there's someone leading it who i assume you know given that they're a jewish family is like a rabbi of some sort telling it and he sells this one ridiculous joke that i just loved that was like mona loved beau with a love that could move mountains in fact, I suggest when we leave, we check on the mountains to make sure they're okay. I oh, yeah. <laughs> God, it was so funny. <laughs> it was it was probably my biggest laugh during the movie, and I was like, yeah, that is, I've heard that joke and everything like it, you know, a thousand times. So that to me, you know, maybe a little unexpected, but that to me right. was a very, you know, very Jewish scene. Tana, mm. what else do you got? I liken the jokes more to like a like a bris situation. I feel like less I've less I've heard less jokes at funerals and more like at Fair. like brises, you know, where they're like, okay, what times tip off or whatever. But honestly, you know, that like, made it more Jewish because I've heard yeah, people yeah. like work in the uh, well, that tip off I just got is a good bit. But people will like work in their stand up into their eulogies. I'm like, yeah, right. of course, like yeah. let's check on the man. And you hear like a soft chuckle afterward. Maybe we'll right. loop it. In. We'll clip it in. But that's that's right. my favorite part of that. I, can I say one thing real quickly? I just want to look this up. The, I believe the I believe that because he's credited as rabbi in the movie right. it's just a voice so i'm assuming this is the rabbi you're talking about it's david mamet oh no very way. cool as oh yeah here it is as the as for the rabbi who offers a eulogy at the funeral uh post characters late to it's david mamet that's another jewish cheat code or no Amazing. i'm gonna say that makes it more jewish i'll take it yeah there we go i'm gonna probably go with so you said the end scene and you said the joke at the funeral i feel like i i might just uh you know, the the quote from Dr. Cohen, uh, you know, about the funeral, like quoting, it, you know, Bo, it shall not wait all night is what he says uh, when he's talking about, 
you know, again, I guess that's kind of Richard Kind cheat code-ish, but, uh, you know, quote, anytime we're directly quoting uh, the scriptures, I think it's probably, you know, textual Jewishness. There's a lot of subtextual, which we'll get into in just a second, but I think that might be one of mine. I didn't want to spoil my stretch, so. Can I ask you guys, because um, I think, I, I, I grew up going to Hebrew school, but I will say that my uh, Talmudic knowledge is... Uh, not not great these days, but I, the the something about the storytelling in the in the play scene, the way that the story of the the sons, it it felt very uh, Hebrew school to me. It felt very much like I was listening to like you know, and he had three boys, and the three boy like I, I can't put it into words exactly. Maybe you mm-hmm. can probably help me out with this a little bit, but. It felt very like um, omniscient narrator, but it was also like collapsing time where it was like, Mm -hmm. it was three boys and they were all very good looking and they developed trades and like that. And that's right. Yes. You know, that's sort of like the whole, uh, what I was saying before, like the prophecy of God, like if you were to follow my rules, here's all the great things that are going to happen with you. You're going to become a vast nation and you're going to have lots of crops and you'll become a plentiful people and um, that's sort of the vibe I got from it. I think there was something very biblical about that. And I'm going to use that to tee up our stretch of the pod conversation because no. there's some stuff that we can mine from there. Okay. okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, I won't even, I'm actually going to set up, oh, I don't know if Nathan, you have a different one, but just go into the Noah free, but let me just introduce the question. But first of all, stretch of the pod category number two, this is where we take on, you know, a stretch on the movie that, I mean, there's a movie rich with subtext. So it's a little bit of an effort this time, but we have to find a take that is, we, we joke unintended by the filmmakers, but where can we kind of, you know, use our Jewish minds to work some Jewishness into the movie? So um, into our take on the movie, just because you mentioned the three sons, it was evocative of the Noah thread that you had mentioned earlier about him kind of being, I think you were totally on point with that. I mean, this could have been intended, but in the beginning scene where Bo is kind of the one, you know, it, it's actually, it's, it's very Noah because there's this famous um, rabbi or there's this like the rabbinic idea about Noah that it says, in the, in the Torah, it describes him as being really good in his generation. And the debate is, was he just amazing relative to being in such a terrible generation? And this is what the rabbis ask on it. Or was he so good that even in such a terrible you know generation, he could still be you know this amazing person? I think in the case of Bo, it's certainly the former. I don't think he does anything that marks himself as being particularly virtuous. But relative to everyone else, I think he definitely embodies that yeah. Noah character. Mm-hmm. And just to take it further, in that dream sequence, which I already mentioned, his family is kind of pushed away by a flood. I mean, his family is him and his three children. Noah famously had three children, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. They were like his three kids. And, you know, there's not the same kind of divorce and reunion story, but there's some stuff there. If anyone wants to take that branch further, or if you want to pitch other things, but there, there's a biblical Noah thing that I, I really do feel like we can track in this movie. I'm going to leave that olive branch to you. There was some weird stuff too, about like, you're going to, there is a woman who we don't see and you're going to have sex with her and you'll have three kids and sometimes she'll look like a man it's like what but then that man was the person we saw at the play and we're like what's going on that very weird stuff D- nathan did you have a did you have a stretch that came to mind for you so you are you picking the play harry is that are we just as i'm writing stuff down or you have you not gone yet it's funny i know because part of me just wanted to acknowledge it because we had gone so deep and also uh-huh. instead of nathan if you had thought about that more and wanted to take that further i have one other one that's similarly undeveloped but for now i'll stick with the uh the Noah, the Noah. okay great hear what you guys say and you know what i can add it i think it's for me I, I don't know how much uh, of a stretch this is because it feels it feels somewhat intentional, but Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan's characters and House feel uh, they just feel like real guys. 
and he just uh, okay. he, he to me he he reads even more Jewish next to them. Like he just seems so out of place, and I can't quite figure it out. I don't know if it's that they have uh, a son that was in the army. I I, I mean, obviously Jews do serve, but I don't really know any. So it, it felt everything about it just felt like a very sure. like Christian American house. And she's like a cheerleader. There's that too. Yeah, I, th- I, I feel I, like I, I saw I a cross or two on the wall. I could be wrong. I, that's the thing is I could be wrong, but I can picture it in this. I'm like, oh, they yeah. would definitely have a cross on their wall. They, right. what, they, what am I saying? They say grace before dinner. Sure. Uh, there's just, I think that, you know, the, the movie really establishes Bo as being Jewish without, I don't think they ever mention. Do they ever say Judaism or Jewish at all? Like Aster has, which I think gives us the license to do this. I think mm-hmm. the names, you know, Wasserman that are thrown out. I think, yeah. you know, like the I, Shiva, I, the band says Shiva. Oh, that, right, oh, that, that was it. Yes. I actually, I didn't clock it this last time. I saw that the first time I saw the movie. That's totally right. So I think that's I didn't our one that the clue. That, yeah. And he's credited yeah. as rabbi on IMDb. So right during I, that the, is true. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so. This is slightly right. subtext, but you know, we're no, kinda... but, I, but I, I like this take that you're saying that kind of putting him in that family, it like they are such a sharp contrast. And I think religiously, there's, there's, sure. there's, there's a specific feel to it that I think you're right. I mean, even, you know, the daughter's relationship with her parents is like, you know, markedly different than kind of oh, what we're sure. Seeing. She's so distant. She, she, yeah. she talks back to her parents constantly. Oh, They're always yeah. yelling at her. I mean, there's the 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 fighting is is the complete opposite of Bo's fighting with his mom, which is yeah. very passive aggressive. Yeah. Uh, which um, yeah. mom, I love you so much, but we love uh, you, I'm sorry. Like <laughs> uh, Jewish moms can sometimes be a, a little passive, um, sure. and so uh, <laughs> I, I think that Bo stands out even more as being very Jewish next to that family. Great, I love that. That's a good I love one. That, yeah. I mean, my stretch is, you know, since it's era of Yom Kippur in a couple of days, um, there's this idea at the, the moment where he's like getting, you know, a specific moment, less sort of thematic and more sort of literal what we see, you know, he's offered like two white garments when he's about to like change into his outfit during the play. Um, and, you know, some people during Yom Kippur wear what's called like a kittel, like this sort of white robe thing before you get married or before Yom Kippur. So that would be my stretch is that like, He's preparing um, both in the play, you know, for judgment. I think the narrator at some point says to Bo uh, that tells old Bo that he needs to confess for his sins at some point, you know, when he's uh, chained up and like they think that, you know, he walks into that town and those angry people with the masks are like, you've caused some sort of crime. And then he gets locked up and they ask him to confess. So there's, you know, a lot of confession moments. But I think that particular moment there was my stretch. Uh, certainly, Ari Aster may not have had Yom Kippur in mind when showing those two white uh, robes, but that's sort of my uh, pick. There's also a great there's a great joke, like when he does, which isn't a Jewish joke, but he uh, when he offers him the thing, he says something like, uh, "We kind of are an experimental theater thing. We kind of push the boundaries of what the audience." Can. And I was like, "God, that's such a funny take on <laughs> on modern theater." Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. definitely, I think, reflective of this movie, which, like I said, especially in that final scene, is similarly inviting you to you know cast your own judgment i think so i think yeah. it's it's both you know mocking it and maybe being guilty of taking that on a little bit as its own mantle 100 um what do we feel about this movie in terms of its legacy uh you know as being you know good or not for the jews do we feel like this is a film that is you know when people watch this like aliens come from mars which they will soon and we love our aliens just as much as we love our jewish moms but um you know they watch bo is afraid are they gonna you know what's their impression of jewish people going to be when we say bo is a jewish person watch this movie let us know what you think well so in a weird way i i think we were talking about do they actually outright say he's jewish i 
wonder if someone is not Jewish and doesn't know Jews, if they would even pick up on it, which it mm. seems crazy for me, I would notice it right away. But I was at a uh, bar in Phoenix, Arizona, and a, and a woman mentioned, which was talking to me, and she mentioned my glasses and curly hair. And uh, for those on the podcast, you can't see, I look incredibly Jewish. And so I said to her, yeah, this, this is what a Jew looks like. And she had, no, she was like, really? I had no idea. And it was like, really kind of surprising and then she made some offensive statements but the point is that it was like <laughs> it was so shocking to me that she like had no clue and so then i think about this movie and i'm like if that woman watched it there's no way she would block that any of this is jewish right and so in right. this weird way i think it's great for jews because it's the kind of like i watched it and i was like oh this is for us like i i relate to this i i feel a lot what this character feels it's like digging into a lot of specific anxieties that jews have it's a movie that anyone could can watch, and and I'm sure there are tons of non-Jews that that enjoy the film for many reasons. They also probably can relate to it in their own relationship with their parents. But parents, but yeah, my take is that this is good for Jews because it's got a lot of like little hidden things just for us. Okay, Harry, I, I really really love that take. I, I think that's totally accurate. I think that if you're watching this movie, like it's it's one of those stories where you know, if you're listening to this podcast, watching this movie, and you're not coming with this Jewish angle that obviously we took when we all watched it for this podcast, and you're not, you know, you don't have this Jewish background. I mean, obviously, other people can relate to these concepts of anxiety and guilt. Like, I think it's not just true to the Jewish experience. I actually think it's also true to kind of the Jewish character, like culture that's emerged around I mean, film history and recorded history. Like, I think this concept of the neurotic Jew is this coded Jewish character that even in this movie i think we've there's enough evidence to say that he is jewish in the movie but even if he wasn't i think this movie the way that it's interacting with those ideas to someone who is you know either jewish and or you know familiar with that kind of representation that kind of experience i think this is a very effective movie but i agree that to someone without that context this movie isn't telling you that you know these are clearly jews and this is something that is you know them like you, you can connect to this on a lot of bases so because of that I think this is great as a Jewish person myself. I really enjoy it and I'm a little bit afraid of, you know, what this movie kind of uh, played with. But but yeah, but I, I don't see it being, you know, any more harmful than it is just a very anxiety inducing movie. Unless you know that Ari Aster is Jewish and you're one of those people who hates this movie and turns it off after a half hour on, on a broader level, maybe that's not great for us. But otherwise, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I like this, you know, as being more good for the Jews than not. Interesting. I had, yeah, a very, what you think. I had a very different read of it. Like, I think, Great. you know, like sort of the, 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 the prompt was sort of like, you know, to that woman in the bar, let's, let's maybe not put uh, aliens into the equation, but the woman in the bar and you say, this is about a Jewish person. Watch this film. What are you going to think? Is this going to be like, is she going to like buy you a beer afterwards? Or is she going to be like, you guys are fucked up. Like what's going on here? Like, I, I would say that like similar to that like time capsule or whatever thing that you send in, in space, do you know what I'm talking about? Where they sent like a record in space for aliens to like listen. Like I wouldn't put this on that spaceship and send it out for those aliens. I would put something, you know, like Fiddler or whatever, something a little bit more cheery and more, you know, somewhat more nuanced and a positive representation of Jewish people, you know. I enjoyed the film as an experiment and I enjoyed all that they packed into it. It's a challenging film and things like that. I don't necessarily feel like it's the best representation. And so for that reason, I'll probably say it's not so good for the Jews. Um, yeah. But I, but I heard what you were saying, you know, like I, I like what it, what it 
all the Easter eggs and what it conveyed and, you know, but it's a tough film to handle. And, and I don't necessarily feel like it's probably the best one to put out there on that, uh, whatever that spaceship. Yeah. I, I think there's nuance in how you're taking this movie as kind of representative of, you know, and I think we all absolutely are that this is a common, you know, again, to a much, much more extreme end, but this is like sure. a common. And I think if you're watching that and you see this, you know, this mother, like Patty LaPone, who I said, partially because of, again, just my own relationship with passive aggression, which is not true of my mother or any of the amazing people in my life. But just in general, like, I think she is a pretty despicable character. Like, and yeah. I, I didn't come out of it hating Bo. I think I felt sorry for how mm -hmm. much he was like beat upon and how passive he was. But I think there are certain characters. And if, if Patty Lapone, and the funny thing about Patty Lapone, she, I think, and I saw this written out, but is part of that rich Jewish tradition of Italian actors playing, you know, Jewish mothers. Agreement. So sure, sure, the handshake sure. agreement. So in some ways, this is navigating, negotiating even more with the history of Jews on film, oh, uh, you know, Jews on screen. Sure. No, but, but I, but I think like if you're looking at her and you're like, oh, that is the Jewish mother experience, I think that's pretty harsh to see. But I think it's probably harder for Jewish people with or people familiar with that kind of Jewish cultural experience than it would be for, you know, this kind of uh, straw man, you know, woman in the bar that we're referring to who might not connect right. those dots as much. So sure. Just kind of balance in between all of our takes here. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I throw out a question for you guys? If if there Please. was one piece of Jewish media that you could put out into space for the aliens, what would it be? Hmm. And it doesn't have to be a film. It could be a moment. I like for me, I'd be like, I don't know, David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear really <laughs> or, or the Hanukkah song. One of those two. Oh, yeah. That's those, those are very different picks, but I like it. Yeah, I just want to, you know what? It's either like celebrating all the Jews or showing that we have incredible powers. Uh, <laughs> Jews are magic. I was going to say, like, there, I, I, you know, my first thought was some matzo ball soups that came to mind as like if those could oh. be kind of preserved through space. Yeah, that's, yeah, like, that's a good one. Like, I, but I think it raises a good point about this movie. This movie is not a celebration of Jewish culture. It is right. a very, but it's also a very, very, like, it's not asking to do a lot. It's not good or bad. It's a very specific kind of lens into sure. this experience of guilt and anxiety that I think is very nuanced and fits its three hour runtime because there's so much depth in that conversation. Yeah. But I don't think this movie is doing the job that we're necessarily asking it to do, you know, with this prompt, with this question. And right. that's fine. Yeah. hundred percent. That being said, what are you sending into space, Harry? I mean, I still think it's my matzo ball soup. It's Mozzie probably Mozzie. Mr. Broadway. Shout out. They have a really good one. And a good sandwich. I would, I would package a whole like deli sandwich meal yeah, you know, with half sour pickles. I would do the whole yeah. thing. I'll do this classic question within a question. Like, how big is the box that we're sending into space? And like, how much can we fit in there? Let me talk here. Like, is it like, you know, there's a lot that I would send. I don't know, you know. If it's like media or food, I think food's a great one. Like, like some books, holy books or things like that. Like the foundational texts. Um, maybe I'll do like a care package wrapped in cellophane with like a lot of those things. Like Harry's matzo ball soup, maybe a couple of your DVDs and CDs, and then some, you know, just like a nice gift basket, some babka perhaps, some other good things. I don't know. Can I? That's good. Yeah, I'll I'll think about it and, and maybe get back to you. But I think maybe a, a, like a sort of potpourri of all the different things reflecting all the different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'll it's throw a like a Zabar's gift card. So if they yeah. do come, oh, they oh, yeah. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. they come, for sure. I mean, Daniel, you yeah. did that. You did that classic 
just to full circle this Bo, you know, his inability to decide and be told right. you were asked to bring <laughs> one thing. You pitched a care package with 12 things like just tell me what to do, Harry. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> bring the bring the David Copperfield DVD, get that kind of synced up and, you know, DVD player, I guess, too. And we're good um, with let's that. Numbers, I wanted yeah? to exactly let's let's talk in the numbers. We're going to rate this movie on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. Not necessarily on a scale of how good the movie is, although we can save that for our own judgment, but specifically on how Jewish it is. Like, how Jewish is this full stop? We often take into consideration the cast and crew, the content actually on screen, and then, of course, you know, the layered themes that we've come up with. So, um, Daniel, do you want to actually get us started? Give yeah, us absolutely. a scale. One to sure. five Jewish stars. Where do you think this movie weighs in? Uh, so just as far as like cast and crew, Ari Aster is Jewish. Zoe Lister-Jones, who plays young Mona, is Jewish. Joaquin Phoenix, as far as I know, is not Jewish. Um, we did get the David Mamet voiceover, Richard Kind. Um, as far as the Jews on screen, apologies if I missed anybody. The content, the story is, you know, going home, like very literally, he's going home to, to for a shiva, a Jewish thing. Uh, the themes we talked about, we have guilt, uh, neuroses, uh, you know, dreamlike sequences, water, all that kind of stuff. I think I'm probably going to go, I think like a three and a half, maybe, you know, uh, it's like a little bit more than, you know, two and a half is like below, below two and a half is like less Jewish than it is Jewish above that is more Jewish than not. Uh, so I'll probably say like three and a quarter. That's sort of my rating. How about yourself, Nathan? I think I would probably go four, mm -hmm. four Jewish stars. Um, really only for losing a star for the Joaquin Phoenix, Patty LaPone element. Mm -hmm. The okay. two big, big stars are not Jewish, but you know, I, it is, it is written and directed by a Jew. It is filled with Jewish, famous Jewish actors, character actors. Like we said, the themes that there, there's so much packed into it. And honestly, so much more than I'm realizing as we talk about it, like the theme mm -hmm. of water, for instance, that yeah. my, my number is going up where I'm like, wow, this is, even more Jewish than that. So I'm, I'm going to stick with four out of five. Okay. Harry, how about yourself? I, I think I'm going to take the upper bound with this one. I think what's challenging for us in this exercise, Daniel, is we've talked about, you know, at this point we've covered, I think over 50 movies at this point, and we've spoken about a lot of different Jewish angles. And sometimes it's easier to point to ones that have a very specific, you know, religious activity that's being performed or just very, you know, a lot of the cultural things that we normally touch on are mm -hmm. the music, the food, like there are certain cultural things. I think this is unpacking this very, very Jewish, you know, sentiment, at least, you know, according to, you know, some of our own experiences or maybe those people we've talked to, but just the, this relationship with guilt that, like I said, even if it's not true to everyone's experience is definitely something that's been associated with this Jewish character. Like, I think that the way that this movie is unpacking, you know, kind of the mother's love and guilt and that pressure that we feel and that anxiety mm -hmm. and that indecision is like, it's just very Jewish in a way that a lot of the movies we've covered in the past aren't exploring their Jewishness, even when they're in like the Woody Allen mold of doing the neurotic character. This sure. is like, like I said in the beginning, this isn't just showing the neurotic character in the real world. This is giving us the world of the neurotic character, which to me was really Jewish. Like the Joaquin Phoenix not being Jewish thing. I guess I didn't question that, but it makes sense. Like is a little bit strange in this movie. That's so, you know, the, the right. two central characters, the mother and, you know, Bo, you know, the eponymous Bo, you know, not being Jewish is a little bit strange, you know, and that's, that's a whole other conversation, but 
I, I am fine with it for a movie that is so explicitly Jewish. Ari Aster referred to this as his, you know, he compared this movie as like in an interview as like a Jewish Lord of the Rings where, you know, all the, the Jewish characters just trying to get to his mother's house. And it's just, it's very effective there. So 4.25, marking off a couple points for some of the other stuff, but I still think this is, you know, more Jewish than a lot of the movies we've uh, we've given higher grades to. Uh, Daniel, what do you want to add there? Late breaking news. I really apologize for not bringing this in earlier. Joaquin Phoenix was born Joaquin Rafael Bottom in San Juan, Puerto Rico to Arlen Dunitz and John Bottom. Uh, he is His mother is from a Jewish family from New York, while his father is from California, is of mostly British Isles descent. So he is Jewish. I do apologize for that. If there, anyone, wants, if anyone wants to retake their answers, I do apologize. I'll go, I'll go 4.5. I'll, 4. I'll, I'll dump it up. I'll dump okay. it up half a Jewish star. All right, Harry. I think I'm gonna stick with I, I'm gonna stick with my 4.25 just to leave room for some other you know less broad stuff that could that could be more specifically Jewish. But like if we even have to ask, you know, are we sure that he was actually considered like named Jewish in the movie? You know, maybe a a five right. star to me would have that question answered a little more clearly. But I still my 4.25 is pretty high, and I'm happy to hear that Joaquin Phoenix you know is of Jewish descent. Yeah, apologies for, for not this movie, bringing yeah. that in earlier. Um, yeah. uh, Sometimes I get too caught up in the theories and don't uh, cover the, the <laughs> basics. But uh, uh, Nathan Seiker, thank you so much for for being a guest here on Jews on Film. Uh, at this time, uh, you know, Friday, September twenty second. I wanted to know: is there anything you wanted to like plug or promote that you are uh, comfortable promoting? Yes. Uh, so as of the recording, as we're recording right now, the uh, WGA and SAG strike is still ongoing. Um, they're, they're talking right now, so who knows if it's over by the time, uh, this comes out, but if, if it is still ongoing, uh, please consider donating to the entertainment community fund. It helps, uh, all crews that are out of work right now, uh, myself, many others who are, uh, non-union, but are still affected by the strike. Uh, just, you know, helping people get by during this, uh, challenging time. Awesome. Thank you. And is there a place that people, you want to send people to, uh, for that, or we could put a link in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. It's entertainmentcommunity.org. Okay, awesome. We will definitely put that in. Um, thanks so much. Harry, anything cooking you want to plug? Well, thanks everyone for listening. We just wanted to say, for the record, we love our moms. We love <laughs> our moms. We love our moms. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, thanks so much for listening to Jews on Film. You can find us out on, on all the social media. Uh, you can email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and Shabbat Shalom. Bye. Shana Tova. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Harry edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>